scripture reading this morning comes from 1 John 3, chapter, or chapter 3, verses 4 through 10. And uh, so we're going to start in verse 4. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sin, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either known, seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. This is the reading of God's word. You may be seated. We will talk about the devil next week. So if you don't hear about him today, fret not. So we'll discuss him next week again, since we talked about him once before. So Happy New Year, everyone. Each new year, many people, perhaps some of you in this very room, have made some resolutions. Maybe you've decided to diet a little more or exercise or read the Bible, pray more. Maybe you've decided to drink less coffee. For those of you who did make that resolution, you are not standing there. That was a long line. <laughs> Maybe you decided to read some more books. I have made a resolution. My resolution is that this year, in mind, in heart, I will not sin or action. So how many of you think I'll be able to keep it? It really will be the fastest broken resolution ever made. And when you listen to this passage in 1 John 3, 4 through 10, it doesn't seem as though this is what a Christian is, someone who doesn't sin. And yet, John makes it seem as though it is possible to not sin. So here's the real question. We've talked a lot about what it means to be a Christian, to be born again. And in this passage, which is quite a debated passage, that many have used to describe a person that is a Christian as someone who doesn't sin or who uh, doesn't make it their life to sin. And the question is, is that even possible? Should it be our resolution, our goal to not sin? Augustus Toplady, he wrote a number of hymns, and he tried to count the number of sins that he had can't remember the exact number, but it was, it was very specific. It was like something along the lines of 7,600,000, 539, or something. It was very specific. And that really does not do justice to the idea of what it means to even think, should our goal as a Christian be to not sin? So I'm going to tackle this by a few quest, a couple of questions, and then we'll talk again next week, about Satan's role in all of this. The first is, 
What's so bad about sin in the first place? That's the first question we need to ask. What is so bad about sin? We've touched on that a lot, but we're going to continue pressing into that. And the second is, is it possible to not sin? Or uh, why is stopping sin so difficult and maybe impossible? So let's look at the first question. What's so bad about sin in the first place? And I see verse 4 as answering that question. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Remember a few weeks ago, we talked about how certain words have become trite and cliched based on overusage without really going into the meaning of a word. So the word love is a word that we throw around so often that love becomes meaningless, essentially. As well, we also talked about sin being another one of those words, and so therefore, a lot of churches don't like using the word sin because it makes people feel bad. As well as the idea that that word, that three-letter word, just seems judgmental. And so, should we even use that word? The fact is that if we think that way, we do not understand really what sin is. And if we don't understand what sin is, we can't properly diagnose it to our own heart, and to realize what John is talking about here in 1 John 3, 4 through 10. We talked about sin as a displacement of God. The idea that you're going to take something and put it into the rightful place where God himself alone belongs. And so it's a worldview. It's more than just simply an action. It's even if it's in the moment, it's the idea that we become an atheist for a moment. And granted, there are philosophical atheists, but there are also, might I dare say, even Christian atheists, in the sense that when we sin, in that very moment, we no longer trust or believe in God, but we essentially say that whatever I am seeking, even if it's my own justice, my own righteousness, that that becomes greater than God himself in my life. So therefore, I displace God as God. I put myself on that throne, and I decide for myself what is right and wrong. It's essentially, again, we go back to the garden. That's Adam and Eve's ultimate core sin, and it's truly the, the prototype of all sin, is the idea that I determine what is right and wrong in my life. And so that's, in essence what sin is. But if we look at verse 4 again, John lays out a little bit more of a nuance to that idea, that there's a, a sense of degree upon this sin. First, the way that we he, he lays this out is by understanding this phrase, he makes a practice of sinning. Whoever, everyone who makes a practice of sinning. The key for John is not that this person has sinned, but rather that this person is continuing to sin, that they are making a practice of, that it's ongoing. And think of it as the idea that this person has no desire to change. He likes things as it is. It's very comfortable for him. So he goes home at night, takes his a sip of brandy or maybe more than a sip, of, uh, just a glass of whiskey, whatever it is, gets buzz drunk every night. 
He gets confronted by his wife, and his wife just sort of says, you know what, you need to, you need to really temper your drinking. And he scoffs and gets angry and says he's under control. That heart is one that makes a practice of sinning, where no one, even those whom love that person, can speak into that life. When someone points out that, you know, you're sort of overwrought with worry on a regular basis, and not only are we in denial, we're regularly in denial, and we're refusing to hear anyone else, that's a practice of sinning. A regular irritability with all those around you, without any sense of correction or a willingness to change. That's the practice of sinning. It's the desire to do whatever one wants to do without any repercussion, any attempt, any openness to even consider the possibility that we are a, re a rebel against God, desiring to not worship God but to worship ourselves. That's the practice of sinning. There's also the idea of the practice of sinning is a very actionable word. It's not just the thought. There's an outworking of it. It's a doing. That's the thing about sin is that it's revealed and you can't hide it, no matter how hard you try. So you can walk around most of the time with a smile on your face, but eventually it will come out because the heart has been affected and infected by sin. And eventually the practice plays out from the heart. An example of this is I was watching a video of Pope Francis during Mass, Christmas Mass this week, and afterward he was making his rounds, and I don't know if some of you saw this video, and he's walking around and shaking hands and blessing people, and this woman comes up to him, is behind the line, and as he reaches out his hand, she grabs his hand and would not let go. She's like, you know, oh, your holiness, whatever, and he, he tries to pull his hand away, and he can't, and so he slaps her hand. And he turns to the face and he has this scowl. And I thought, that is a great illustration for this little part here. I mean, here's the Pope from the, his holiness, right? Whether you're a Catholic or not, whether you believe that Catholic theology is wrong or right, in the end, most of us think of the Pope as a moral person. But the fact of the matter is, is that he's a sinner. And as a sinner... Even though he outwardly tries to look nice and kind and generous. But when his heart is pricked because someone has impeded his space, it's hard to hide the action. That's what happens to sin. No matter how much you try to appear holy, the heart will always come through in the end. It's sort of like, the person who has food poisoning, if you ever had food poisoning, and if you're like me, you don't like to vomit. <laughs> no one likes vomiting, but some people will do everything they can to not vomit. Some people will try the best they can. They'll just say, you know what, I just got to get it over with. But some people hate it, and I used to be that. I, I was that person. I am that person. But when you have food poisoning, no matter how much you try to hold it in, you all know what happens. It comes out. It forces its way out. And that's sin. Sin cannot be held in by willpower, by morality, by rituals, by tradition. The practice of sin looks sinful. It looks angry. 
It looks worried. The practice of sin gives the silent treatment. It scowls, it folds the hands and scoffs. It has a disdainful prove to me yourself, prove yourself to me attitude. And it treats a waiter or waitress with disdain because he deserves to get chewed out. You know, that it's, it throws tantrums. It refuses to share. It doesn't serve others. It's cheap. It's greedy. That's the sinful heart. And so the practice of sinfulness looks like that. Thirdly is that this person is a person who further practices what John calls lawlessness. In the Greek, it's actually anomania. It's actually no law. So it's person who is lawful, it's the opposite of that. And that's why the, the translations describe it as lawlessness. It's a very important word. It's used 220 times in the Old Testament. So whenever the Bible repeats a word, there's a very intentional purpose behind it. It's intended to emphasize. And here's the thing about this lawlessness in the Old Testament. Pretty much most of the uses of, most of those 220 times of usages deal with terrible sexual perversions or the worst wicked of deeds. So what John is saying is that this person who has displaced God, which is what sin is, who's regularly going and ongoing without any sense of openness to correction, without a, a semblance of willingness to say, I might be wrong in this, left unchecked, they are susceptible to even the, the worst and most vile of law-breaking against God. Because, see, it's not the physical acts that makes lawlessness. It's the worldview of this person. For this person, their worldview is, I am the master of my life. And no one has any right to enter into my domain unless I allow them to. This person does not believe in ultimate accountability. The Bible has a clear line of accountability. And ultimately, it's God himself. He is our final ultimate authority. And the family structure, governmental structures, all of that are meant to shadow and foreshadow and mirror this idea that we are submissive to this ultimate authority. And when that breaks down, when that worldview breaks down and we sin as a result of saying, I'm not going to align in that. I don't believe you are over me, oh God. It's that person then who then is susceptible to the greatest of rebellions against God, including the worst of sins, lawlessness. So that's sort of the idea that John is trying to say is that you have to recognize that sin is not just some, quote, innocent sin. It's not cute. It's not something that people do only once in a while, and I'm not as bad as those sinners over there. Those sinners that we see maybe in different parts of the country or in the world who are in the prisons or on the streets homeless because of drug abuse or prostitutes, we think to ourselves, I'm not like them. What John is saying is that we are exactly like them. That this heart, the heart that the Pope showed, is the heart that we all have. And left unchecked has the natural, logical occurrence of being able to go to a point of ultimate lawlessness where 
God is nowhere in existence. So someone who is wealthy or powerful, they might not go around shooting someone, but they might go around ordering people to be killed. There, the, there's a reason why the, the dictators of our world, they didn't start off just going around being a thug shooting people and hitting people. A lot of them were prestigious, intellectual, had great philosophical ideas, and suddenly the Stalins of the world comes and goes and slaughters millions. It doesn't take a person who is strung up on drugs or someone who is walking the streets to sell their bodies to be so terrible. In fact, some of the greatest villains of our world are those who are smart, who are who look great, who are wealthy, and who have everything put together and well-educated. This is the idea. You have to realize how dangerous of a state this is. This is not about the pimp and the drug smuggler and the human trafficker. This person, the lawless person, is morally nice, can be clean, can be affluent, can be educated. All, again, all we need to do is look at history. I've been reading a lot about Nazi Germany of late and one person who comes to mind when we think about Nazi Germany and, and Christianity is Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the, the pastor theologian who was eventually executed for um, participating in an assassination plot against Hitler. He had deep problems with the German church because the German church consisted of people like us. They were worshiping. They were safe. They were smart. They were... Um, really productive people in society, but around them, Jews were being brought in droves to the concentration camps and executed in gas chambers. And always, the biggest question was, why did no one, especially Christians, why did no one stand up, or very few, percentage-wise? Tim Keller wrote the um, the foreword to Eric Metaxas's biography on Bonhoeffer. And I really like the way he describes it. It's a little long, but I, I want you to just take this in because it describes what the state of the heart of the Christian is like in this context. How could the church of Luther, that great teacher of the gospel, have ever come to such a place? And he's talking about the German church in Nazi Germany. The answer is that the true gospel, summed up by Bonhoeffer as costly grace, had been lost. On the one hand, the church had become marked by formalism. That meant going to church and hearing that God just loves and forgives everyone. So it doesn't really matter how much, how, um, how, uh, doesn't matter much how you live. Bonhoeffer called this cheap grace. On the other hand, there was legalism or salvation by law and good works. Legalism meant that God loves you because you have pulled yourself together and are trying to live a good disciplined life. Both of these impulses made it possible for Hitler to come to power. The formalists in Germany, Germany may have seen things that bothered them, but saw no need to sacrifice their safety to stand up to them. Legalists respond by having pharisaical attitudes toward other nations and races that approved of Hitler's policies. But as one, Germany lost hold of the brilliant balance of the gospel that Luther so persistently expounded. We are saved by faith alone but not by faith which is alone. That is, we are saved not by anything we do, but by grace. Yet if we have truly understood and believed the gospel, it will change what we do and how we live.
The gospel is gracious, but it changes the way we do, what we do and how we live. And the heart deems himself as God who cannot himself submit to anything other than himself. That's John's warning for us. Lawlessness begins with a displacement of God, replacement of ourselves as God, and then leads to an ultimate rejection of God that is so deep that he is unwilling to do anything that perhaps jeopardizes placing himself or herself on the top of his heart. That's what Judges describes as everyone does what is right in his own eyes. And so if we don't get to the core of sin and understand that, yes, one sin, even if it's one, is not only an affront against God, but why it just is not a nice sin. It's not so bad. It's not so big. It makes us slowly edge off the cliff of turning and trusting God and instead placing ourselves as God. That one sin is all it takes. It makes us understand then, it sort of answers the question of why it is so hard to not sin. Why is ceasing to sin so hard? And John writes about this in verses 5 through 8 and verse 10. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Again, we'll talk about the devil next week. But these verses have been so troubling for Christians. And there's a reason why, because they use the King James Version for much of over almost two millennia to understand these verses. And if you look at the King James, you realize why it's so troubling. So I want to point this out to you. We're going to look at a little bit of a, a parallel between the King James and pretty much every other modern English translation. In verse 6, according to the King James, it says, Whosoever abideth in him sinneth not. And then verse 9, Whosoever is born of God does not commit sin. Now, if you notice, there is a difference between the ESV, the version that I'm using, and the King James. The King James makes it seem as though if you sin at all, you cannot abide in him as a Christian. Whosoever abideth him sinneth not. But of course, that would contradict chapter 1, verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And then chapter 3, 1. I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So we have to ask ourselves, is John schizophrenic? He's does he, is he contradicting himself? Is he, he's confusing? What's going on? What is he saying? So in the King James, he's, they're translating a verb that is, it's a participle. I know this, I'm sorry about the grammar, but it might help here. It's a present participle, meaning that it's not just 
Whoever abides in him does not sin. Present tense alone makes it sound like it's does not sin. But the King James translates that participle, which should be translated the way that the ESV translates it, a practice of sinning, the regular ongoing sinning. The, the King James translates it as a moment, as, as an ongoing, this has happened. So whoever abides in him does not sin, present, ever. And that's wrong. That's why most modern translations have fixed that and uses the phrase practice sinning or keeps on sinning, which is a right way to look at this verse and that verb in particular, the verb to sin. And so what John is saying is that when Jesus died for our sins, he did die for our sins once and for all. And in Christ, we are set free from the power of sin and death forever and ever. That definitely Christ does. But that doesn't mean we stop sinning. We all know this to be true experientially. Every Christian, even if you really love God, you know that no matter how hard you try, you cannot stop sinning. It's, it's impossible. That's not what... And the danger is that you might start thinking, well, am I a Christian? If you're asking that question... Praise God. You probably are a Christian. You are born again. Because the the Christian is so concerned about their practice of sinning, they want to change. If you're never asking that question, then yes, you're in danger. See, there was a teaching that thought that you actually could stop sinning by your will, by your disciplines, by being in an accountability group. And so they try, it's called Christian perfectionism. John Wesley sort of had that perspective and Wesleyanism and the holiness movement, if you've been in a holiness tradition. And that idea comes from a misunderstanding of a verse like this coming from the King James. And so it really is a, a real danger to our souls to think that we can actually stop now, the flip side is what Tim Keller is talking about, is that you can take that and say, well, I guess I don't have to even try because I'm forgiven. Jesus is righteous. He cleanses my sins. So why do I even have to worry about sin? Paul discusses that in Romans 6, that if we think that way, then judgment is upon us. You know, Jesus did not die so that we can just do whatever we want. He died so that we can be free in him to worship him, to enjoy him, to delight in him. And if we do know him, we will change. We will be transformed. Because think of it this way. It is antithetical to the very nature of God to allow us to be God. If God is truly God, then we can't be God. There, there's, there, you just can't have both concurrently. That's a contradiction. So if sin is a displacement of God and I don't want God in my life at all, then there's no way that I can say I'm a Christian because a Christian assumes that they believe God is ultimate. It is not only lawless and arrogant, but it is antithetical to the very nature of God to allow us to be in his presence as someone who says, I don't believe you. So, it is very, very important that we strive not to sin. And yet, we do sin. It is hard to not sin. 
The Pharisees' problem was not that they fasted or tithed or gave alms to the poor or cared about God's law. That's not the problem. The problem was that they condemned others when they failed to do these things. But in their hearts, they were guilty of the same sins that everybody else was. You see, if I come to you angry because you failed to show up to a meeting that you had promised to be at and you had committed to it, and even if, let's say, the anger, uh, the, the reason, the excuse was legitimate, my anger makes me equally sinful as you not keeping your word. That those are equivalent sins, you might say. In my anger, I'm blinded by my own sin. And if I say, even as a preacher of God's word, my ministry entails and it calls me to protect and guard God's people. And yet my heart, when I go home, is irritable towards my kids and is frustrated. That is a terrible sin just as much as anything else. And left unchecked, I can be preaching about grace and love and truth of the gospel and yet not be saved, not be born again. This is the danger of what's called keep on sinning or the practice of sinning. And that's very different than ever sinning. God has grace for us when we sin. But when I am in the practice of sinning without having even an inkling, an openness to what God wants to show me, the truth of perhaps some of you saying, hey, Sam, you know, I know you've been pretty, I know you've been pretty angry. And if I respond by screaming and yelling at you and saying, how dare you say that about me? That's a real, real sign, a dangerous sign of the question of, am I even saved? I mean, how deadly is it to have a pastor who is preaching the gospel not born again? And I tell you that there are pulpits in this country and in this world where unsaved people are preaching the gospel. So the difference between ceasing sinning completely and ceasing to practice sinning is vast, and we must not confuse the two. It is not possible in this world to completely stop sinning. Again, that's what John 1.8 tells us. That's what John 3.1 tells us, First John 3.1. So we should not promise a person, I will never get angry again. Have you ever promised that to a spouse? I promise you, I will never get angry again. You just lied. As you try to not sin, you're lying too. Also, we should also promise to not demand that of somebody. Because you're putting them into a position where they have to sin in order to appease you. Because if you have to say, I promise you, I will never, you must promise me, you will never get angry again. You can't ask, you can never make that promise. You can't make You can't ask someone to say, I want you to promise that you will never lust again. And I know that's a really, really touchy subject. But think about what you're asking for. You're asking for someone to do something that the Bible says is impossible. Does it mean that they should decide not to do it with all their heart and might? Yes, absolutely. I promise with all my heart, I will try. I will do all I can to make sure that it is not a practice of my heart 
to not grow angry, to lust, to worry. But that's why I also need you to speak into my life and to inform me that when I do fail, that I have still Christ as my Savior. And I still have people around me who are willing to show me grace and mercy and again hold me accountable and turn me back. And I tell you that as you do so, there's growth. How do I know this to be true? Because John describes it, that it is possible to stop the practice of sinning. It is possible to stop being in this state. And there are two ways that I see this, according to John. In verse 9, we have to recognize the seed. What I mean by that is, if you look at verse 9, John says, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning. So what John is saying there is that if you are born again, key phrase, born of God, born again, it's not that you will never sin, but you will not make a practice of sinning. How do we know? How does this happen? For God's seed abides in him. That is, when you are born again, God plants a seed in you. The seed of the gospel, it transforms your heart over time. Over time. Will you be morally perfect in this world? No. But you will grow. You will change. You will be transformed to be more like Jesus. Absolutely. When someone is born again, it is in a moment, in a flash, in a twinkle of an eye. They are, they are born again. They are saved. God saves miraculously that way. But it's not like Beauty and the Beast. It's not as though suddenly from beast to prince in a moment. It takes time. It's a seed. For those of you who just gave birth to a child, you're probably waking up in the middle of the night many times, multiple times, cleaning diapers. And in that moment, you're probably wishing, I want instant transformation. No. I want them, oh, I want to get out of the stage. I want, I want my kids to be adults. And then, you know how it works when they're adults. I wish they were babies again. Just the cycle. But it takes time to go from infant to adult. It takes all sorts of illnesses. And, you know, here's the thing about babies. You know, you, you try to sleep train. You get them going. And then finally, they're sleeping through the night. And then, oh, no, teething. And with that, they're crying through the night again. And you wake up and they're ill and sick. Or you travel and... So there's a lot of swings and ups and downs that come with raising a child from beginning all the way to the end. and never ends, really. And this is a, such a great picture of the Christian life. There's a reason why Jesus describes being saved as being born again, because there's a process, a seed. And John uses the analogy of a seed very specifically, because all you need to do to figure out what this means is, Go home, plant a seed in some soil and watch it. And tell me, does it change? Watch it and stay there and watch it throughout the whole time. How long does it take for that seed to finally change? Maybe a couple of days? Maybe more? Eventually, does it mean that nothing is happening under the soil? No. There's a lot happening when you're watering it, when the soil is enriched, when there's photosynthesis happening, all these things, all these processes happening. But when you physically look at the seed, it looks exactly the same. So when someone is born again, yes, sometimes immediately drugs are cut off. 
The prostitute is set free from that line of life. But sometimes, if they swore like a sailor, they still swear like a sailor right after they're born again. If they lust, they still lust and struggle with it. And rather than thinking, oh, I don't think they're saved, we have to see that there is a life process being done. God does the work of salvation. Salvation belongs to the Lord. God transforms. And we do not need to doubt that. But what does that take? Patience. And that's something that I know I struggle with. I think many of us do in this room. It's hard to wait on people, especially when you saw them once, they were soaring, and suddenly they're just so distant. And you wonder, are they saved? I think that's a good question to ask yourself as you pray for that person. I think you need to consider maybe they're truly not saved. That's a possibility. But know this, that when you are truly born again, the seed is planted. Change is happening. It happens over time. It's always it's not immediate. Just like an infant to an adult, change happens. Sometimes dramatic change. Sometimes the drunkard is free from wine and drink. But change does happen, even if it's over time. Secondly is that the way that we stop the practice of sinning is to abide in him. First, recognize the seed. Second, abide in him. Verse 6. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. That's very clear, right? John tells us the way to stop the practice of sinning, to keep on sinning, is to abide in him. Abide means dwell. And one thing we know about abiding as a Christian is that there is a direct link between the abiding of a Christian and the intake and the indwelling of God's word in that person's life. John makes it so clear for us in John, in 1 John 2, 24. Let what you heard from the beginning, what you heard, which he's speaking about God's word, the, the testimony of the apostles to what Christ has done over time, including the Old, Old Testament saints. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. That is to say that you cannot Stop the practice of sinning if you are not abiding in his word. Those two are directly linked together. Now, here's the thing. Abiding in his word is not reading the Bible. Because you can rush off and read two verses and then go to work and spend the rest of the day doing what you want. That's not abiding in his word. That's fulfilling your obligations and your duties, your religious duties. Abiding isn't coming and listening to a sermon every Sunday because many of us listen to a word, can be even moved, can even tear, can be affected, and then walk out the doors and it makes no difference in your life. So that's not abiding. It's not, I was, that's nice, that helped me to be a better parent or whatever it might be. James describes this person who reads and forgets as someone who looks in a mirror in James 1.24 and forgets what they look like. The Bible is not a religious textbook. It is not a how-to guidebook for your life. The Bible is not a history book primarily. It, it does teach history, but it's not primarily a history book. It's not primarily a science book, which is why we have so many debates about the science of the Bible. The Bible is not a this is very important. It's not a parenting book. 
Now, does it teach principles about parenting? Yes. But that's not the goal of the Bible, actually. Parenting is a fruit. The Bible is not a religious, a leadership book. It's not a Jesus is the best CEO book. No matter how much we try, it's not a self-help book. It's not a church government book. It's not a decision-making book. It's not a how-to-have-good-friends book. And that's the problem with the Bible, the way that we read the Bible, is we go in with a, I want to learn about how to have good friends. I want to learn how to be a better mom. I want to learn how to have a good, to enjoy my career and to, so we go in with all these preconceived notions and what we do is we fail to see what it means to abide in him through his word. You cannot look at the Bible as any of these things as your primary benefit of why you're reading the Bible. To do so, you will not abide in him. Instead, let me ask you a couple of questions. Do you read the Bible not for any of those reasons, but because God is speaking to you through it? The creator of the universe. When you read the Bible, are you going into it saying, Oh God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Teach me today about yourself. I want to hear from you. I don't want to hear, I don't need to hear about the worries of my life or the struggles. I just want to know you. I want to know who you are. The Lord and Creator, He is using this word to speak to you about Himself. And when you understand Himself, you understand you. Think of the one person in the world you would love to have a conversation with. Well, that person is a mortal human being. Do you want to read this Bible as a fulfillment of your New Year's resolution? Oh, it's the beginning of the year, so I think I'm going to try reading the Bible through for the, for the whole year. I guarantee you, you will not finish. If your goal is to try to come up with a Bible reading plan to check off a bunch of check boxes, you will not, you'll get through about Leviticus, and then you'll say, ah, I'm done. It's just too hard. Your goal of reading the Bible has to be, I need God in my life. I want to know Him. I want to desire Him. I want to love Him. I want to delight in Him. And when you do that, you will see that God is speaking to you. And you will abide in His Word. That means that it's not about how much you read or you know, whether you have understand all the mysteries of the world or how you're going to live your life, it's so much deeper than that. The reason we cannot break the practice of our sin, list that sin, worry, anger, fear, lust, envy, greed, idolatry, is because we do not see God's word as it is. It's become a religious textbook that helps us to put another sticker into our planner that says we've accomplished something for God. And of course, if that's our view of the Bible, it will never help us to stop the practice of sinning. Abiding in his word is to abide in him, to find Jesus more precious as a savior than anything else in this world, a greatest, your greatest pursuit. Only then, only when reading God's word, which is the sole means by which we truly abide in him, only when you want to know him and this book helps to that end. 
That's your goal and purpose. First of all, you will read it from cover to cover. Because your ultimate goal is not, I need to check off my reading point. Or get through the day. Or I need to know how to deal with this car accident that I just had. And which body shop to bring my car to. You know, it's instead, I want to know him. And this Bible reading is all about that. Just knowing him. And that will keep you going. Even when it's, even when you're reading about the temple's, you know, dimensions. Or what type of sacrifices. You'll say, somehow this shows me about Jesus. And I want to know that. That means you're going to find answers. You're going to look and ask questions. And you're going to study and you're going to think. Because the goal is not reading Leviticus. The goal is knowing him. John tells us that when that happens, we stop the practice of sinning. Because suddenly, I don't care about what I think which is sin, right? The displacement of God to myself, of myself as God. Suddenly I care more about knowing him and then I yield my heart to him and joy increases exponentially. This is the promise of God is that the New Year's resolution is even if you say, I want to stop sinning, it's not possible. But if you say, I want to stop the practice of sinning, that is possible. But the way we do that is not by trying harder. The way we do that is by knowing that Christ has given his life for you. And he's given the means by which you can know him. Through his word. And I pray that as you read this year, and for some of you who have maybe decided, I'm going to read the Bible this year. If you use a, a reading plan, which is fine and great, don't make the plan the end goal. Make Jesus the end goal. Wherever you are in the Bible, all you have to ask is one question. What does this verse tell me about Jesus? If you just ask that one question, you will abide in him. You will. And if you start dwelling on it, meditating on it, thinking about it, and if you remember that he's given everything so that you might have life in him forever, there's a lot of joy set for you. So as we prepare our hearts for communion, I hope that the Lord blesses you in this new year through his word so that you would stop the practice of sin and experience God's great joy for you. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for these men and women who have come to this place. You've drawn them here for whatever reason, for whatever purpose. Pray for those who have not yet been born again, that they would come to see that truly you are the way, the truth, truth and the life. No one comes to the Father of Jesus except through you. And I pray that they would come to see that to be true. And Father, for those who perhaps have struggled in their faith, may they remember the seed that was planted in them if they are born again. May they be open to hearing from other people even. May they be humble enough to hear perhaps their worldview isn't the way they think it is. Holy Spirit, you're the only one who could change hearts. So we do pray for that. And we pray, Father, for those who come to this table today, that they would come boldly, that they would remember all that Jesus has done. And ask and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.